3: To make you money, I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. have Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to have Money. Welcome to Kramerica. If be one to make friends, I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Cramer. You might think this whole market is hostage to the trade negotiations with China. I mean, that's certainly how it feels after today's bruising, right? With the Dow plunging 280 points. S&P coming 0.66%. NASDAQ sinking 0.55%. But that's just not true. If the trade were... But really, all important, the <laughs> averages would never been able to surge to record levels over and over bye, 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 and bye, bye, over bye, bye, bye. again. As tense as negotiations may be, China is simply a much smaller issue than most people seem to realize. So if that's the case, what the heck just happened over the last four days? Why has the action suddenly become so frightening? What does it mean for your future in your portfolio? OK, a week ago, we learned that the free traders in the Trump administration, Then you got to think about Larry Kudlow, the president's chief economic advisor, and Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. They had high hopes for a deal with the Chinese. They floated the idea that maybe China would be willing to open up its economy to American financial companies if the president would give them a stay of execution on his scheduled December 15th trade hikes. But the hardliners in the White House, no, they warned us. They warned that if the free traders kept talking up the prospects of a deal, the Chinese government would start pushing for better terms. That's been their style. We've seen this before. Every time Trump seems willing to agree to something, they try to move the goalposts. Still, for a while, the president seemed quite taken. He was willing to side with the free traders. He spoke positively about the deal. And that allowed the stock market to surge again. Some people think it's manipulation. No, it's the way it is. Again, we've seen this before. Stocks rally in anticipation of trade ceasefire. Rug gets pulled out from under us. We get back those gains. This time, it's harder to tell who's at fault. Remember, our government put, passed a bill imposing some sanctions on Chinese officials for their crackdown in Hong Kong. Pro-democracy. And suddenly, China was no longer content to ask for no more tariff fights. Instead, they wanted a rollback of the existing tariffs as a precondition for any deal, even the so-called phase one agreement. And that's exactly what the hardliners predicted would happen. So the president struck Back. First, he bought, uh, brought back those uh, tariffs on steel imported from Argentina, and Brazil, because they've devalued their currencies. And more importantly, any country we don't have tariffs on is a country that China can use as a middleman to dump their steel on the U.S. market, depressing our prices. Second, rather than commit to a bad deal, Trump decided to throw a real roundhouse, saying it might be better to wait until after the election to make any agreement with the Chinese at all. And that's what torpedoed the average today. But I've been telling you for ages that you shouldn't get your hopes up about a deal because the two sides are simply too far away from each other. These are those seven deadly sins I talk about, which is far more difficult than just buying some soy or making it easy to have a bank, have a business in China. The thing is, despite how it's often portrayed in the media, the Chinese Communist Party, get this, is newsflash, is just as fallible as any other political organization. At the end of the day, they're human. They make mistakes. They make misjudgments. They have a tendency to be overconfident. This time, I think the Chinese government really overplayed its hand. They were betting that President Trump would be willing to make a deal thanks to the impeachment process. No serious person in this country believes he'll be removed from office, but it might hurt his re-election chances. China was hoping he'd accept worse terms for a quick political victory before the election rolls around. Well, Trump, he just shut that down. I also think China's underestimating the common ground between Trump and most of his potential Democratic opponents on this very issue. Okay, Biden would probably end the trade war. But Warren, Sanders, they might be even tougher on the Chinese than Trump. So the possibility of a stalemate on trade for the next year or even longer is a very real one. Don't forget, they are very anti-coal and China's decided, hey, we need all the coal plants we can get. Now, all this news broke over the last couple of days. At first, Wall Street seemed skeptical that Trump actually meant business. Maybe he wasn't really going after China when he put the kibosh on steel from Brazil and Argentina. By the end of the session yesterday, though, there were rumblings that the trade talks were a little off track. But this morning at 4 a.m., the people I call the pajama traders, those are the people who trade in the pajamas and tend to have to be uh, half-wits, Mountbanks, Knaves, and charlatans. Well, they started feeling bullish, setting the futures higher, giving the appearance that we might have a rebound. Then the president made that offhanded comment at 518 about how the trade talks might take a lot longer than anyone expects. Plus, he flaunted plans for new tariffs against the French, right in front of the French president, doubling the import duty on cheese, wine, fancy goods, because France insists that it can tax American tech companies with impunity. And that sent the futures cascading down. Only the whole market rolled over. Okay, that's the history. What happens now? Simple. We have to remember that everything hinges on trade. We always seem to forget that. It's, uh, It's a common refrain, particularly from the mainstream media. Plenty of companies will do just fine if these tariffs stay in place forever. And aside from China, there are a lot of things that are going right, including getting a lot of business out of China. First, the United States is a service economy that's pretty darn close to full employment. And when you get service and full employment, you get a lot of sales and a lot of money, particularly in housing. Second, we have powerful secular trends that are going on here, like digitization. We'll talk to Salesforce and Coupa later. Medical innovation, a lot of those biotechs being taken over, that don't have anything to do with the trade war. Third, when tariffs go up, economic growth slows a bit, and that causes bond prices to rise. When bond prices go up, their yields go down, and then money flows into higher dividend-yielding stocks. Four, some of our retailers are so powerful that they can squeeze even their Chinese overlords, so to speak, to keep prices down. If you have enough scale, the tariffs simply don't matter. Go ask Walmart, go ask Target, go ask Amazon, they'll tell you. Finally, when you look at the composition of the averages themselves, the industrials are a lot less important than they used to be, which means the tariffs can't hurt us as badly as you might think. Ironically, China's been so great at destroying American manufacturing, they've created a world where the United States doesn't have that much industry. And for that matter, industrial stock market capitalization left to lose. In other words, it hurts China a lot more than it hurts us. And the longer these talks go on or drag on, the more business you see taken out of China and going to the Philippines, going to Indonesia, going to Vietnam, going to Thailand, going to India. So then, if that's the case, why can't we shrug off these trade talks entirely? Mostly tech. Yep, we have immense technology companies with tons of business in the People's Republic, including the largest company on Earth, Apple. The idea that Apple stock could somehow crash if China decides to go after them has been a major theme of all on every one of these down days, even as the stock has rallied more than 100 points since people started fretting about this. But what happens here is that the negatives surface first and they bring everything down. Then the stocks that don't have anything to do with China bounce back. Nevertheless, much of tech keeps getting slammed. And that's the real issue we face right now. While I think that will eventually create fabulous discounts, we're not totally there yet. Bottom line. The market is slow to figure out the positives, very fast to identify any negatives from the trade war, which is why we have days like today. And unfortunately, I think we could have more faux, that's F-A-U-X, trade-related pain before we're ready for some gain. Ed in New York, Ed.
4: Yes. Hi, Jim. Happy holidays to you and your family. Same to you, Ed. What's up? Uh, gee, I'm calling about your take on CBS stock. Um, I know that Starboard has taken a position there. And I think, anyway, that I feel that CBS is a well-run, diversified company. Uh, it's one that's not subject to the whims of trade tensions right. or tweets, etc. Uh, and at this point, I'm wondering, uh, gee, I've done very well. It's been on the tear lately. Right. You know, should I take uh, some chips off the table? Uh, should, maybe I okay. should sell. Well, well let me tell you what we did. It, it, was, it.
3: it was among my, if not the largest position for my travel trust. You can follow what we do there by joining the com club. And we actually sold some today. Why did we sell some? Because it has been straight up, and it was up yesterday again. And you know what? Bulls make money. Bears make money. Well, hogs. So wait till it comes down. Don't buy any here. And if you want to do a little, it's okay. Marvin in Florida. Marvin. Yes. Marv, you're up. Okay. How you doing, Jim? Doing it's well. How are you, Marv? Bo- Boca Raton, Florida. Okay. Well, how can I like I Boca understand. Raton? Oh, I love it. It's uh, I tell you, it was like a, a, a wish that I left. Believe it or not, I left Albuquerque, New Mexico to come here. And I love it. It's very healthy. And uh, I just turned, by the way, I just turned 80. Huh. October 1st. Incredible. How about a stock? Okay. It's called Canopy. Yeah. And it's up 3% today in a down market. Well, look, this stock is dramatically oversold. It's got a huge amount of cash. You know, we did a piece which just said, listen, you got to go into strength. you got to lighten up. Now, why is that? Because the industry turns out to be wildly oversupplied with cannabis. Now, that doesn't mean these stocks can't go up, and this one would be the consolidator. But can we please see what who the CEO is going to be before we take any action? I, and I'm glad you like Boca, although uh, Albuquerque, Boca, it seems like six or a half dozen, frankly. Let's go to Donald in New York, please. Donald. Hi, Jim. Happy holidays. Same. Yeah, sure, I'm a long-term
4: dividend uh, dividend income investor. Most of my portfolio is made up of dividend aristocrats. Okay. But lately, uh, I, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to catch a falling knife. But lately, I'm finding it very difficult to resist that dividend on Macy's, sitting with all that 15 to 20 million, dollar, 20 billion in real estate.
3: Right. What are your thoughts? Well, it, first of all, I think that's an overvaluation of real estate. The problem with Macy's is the same problem I have with Master Limited Partnerships. If you don't have any growth, no one cares about the dividend or some of these, uh, you know, like the Annaly Capitals. So uh, Macy's has to demonstrate growth before I want to buy that dividend. And they have not demonstrated growth. So therefore, they are in the <laughs> and I can't recommend the stock. But I do want to go to Mike in Ohio, please. Mike. Oh yeah, Jim. We oh, yeah, are really Mike from Cleveland, Ohio. I will, one of your thoughts on UPS. It's been a great deal I like UPS. People. I think that quietly, David Abney has emerged as the person who spent the most money in order to be able to build up the infrastructure that's needed to be able to handle cyber Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, whatever. And I think it's the stock to own. You know, I've been a big FedEx backer, but I've got to believe Abney has really done what's right and that that's the one to own. OK, remember, not everything is hostage to the trade negotiations, the lack of a deal. Is going to create some buying opportunities, a lot of names. I said that yesterday. I said we got to come down. But you know what? We're getting there. We're getting there. The real issue is tech. The trade uncertainty is a real headwind for that sector, particularly for Apple, because this is the one everyone thinks has to crash, except for me. Remember, I say, own it, don't trade it. Man Money Tonight. As the market continues its decline, does it feel like it's time to throw in the towel? Okay, not so fast. Don't make a move before you hear my take. Then Salesforce reported after the close. I'm going to be crunching the numbers with the co-CEO fresh off the report the stock's getting killed. And therefore, is Coupa the way to play the cloud? It's a cloud prince. It's become a little bit more of a pauper lately. I'm not so sure that's, that is correct. I'm going to be talking to the CEO. So stay with Kramer.
2: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag MadTweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com. Or give us a call at one 800 743 cnbc Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com.
3: When you see the market get steamrolled like this, I know what it wants you make. You want to feel like running for the hills. Why even bother? Why try? Why not sell everything? Because if you do that, you might not be able to get back in at a lower level. It's entirely possible that this moment will pass, and you'll find yourself experiencing seller's remorse. I'm kind of like the people who got out at Dow 1000 when I started, or Dow, uh, let's say, one thousand six hundred and eighty seven or two thousand nine at Dallas sixty five hundred or seven thousand five you know eight, nine, ten, eleven. You get the point. Let me give you a new term. JP Morgan's brilliant Michael Semblis, he's my favorite strategist. He calls the sellers who get long get short or loud Armageddonists. They're people who go to a football game and when their team is losing, they make the grand sweeping gesture that they're headed to the parking lot to beat the traffic. They feel fabulous that they missed the last part of that big beatdown and made it home an hour earlier than the hapless fans who stuck around. And then the early birds declare that the fun is over forever. Right, what's wrong with that way of thinking? I mean, if you believe the market said, lower, why not just dump everything before it gets worse? Simple. October of 87. The weeks leading to the crash took the Dow from 2,600 down to 2,200. Okay? Uh, going to the crash, I've been shaking, watching so many of the stocks tumble that I liked right there. Uh, I, I, I got out alive, owned, owned no stocks whatsoever, sold them all, and had just 100 puts on Johnson Johnson. I bet against one of my favorite stocks that was really just insurance against an existing position that I'd blown out of this week because of the fear. I had no stocks right here. Yep, I sold everything right before the crash of '87. It made me look like a genius. Genius when the market plummeted like that. Not only did I have zero long exposure, those puts against J&J meant I'd made a bet against Great American Drug Company, and I lived to tell about it. They couldn't topple overnight. It was an incredible win. So why in the world am I telling you this story? Doesn't it totally undermine my point that it's a mistake to sell everything here, that it's foolish to be uh, an Armageddonist? Well, let me tell you what you might not know. There were a half-dozen high-profile money managers back then who were all over TV and the newspapers for calling this crash, telling you to get out here like I did. Oh, they lived off of it for weeks, then months, then years, because reporters are suckers for bears. Me, I didn't know any better. I got back in slowly, although in retrospect, I didn't go fast enough. Any faster I actually worried about being esteemed as a foolish dip buyer who jumped into stocks ahead of the recession that the market was clearly signaling, a recession that never came. What can I say? I'm a pragmatist, not a dogmatist. I saw things I liked, so I bought them. It was the right call. A year later, there were more bears than ever, even as the market clawed its way back. Back to the point where if you'd bought the most active stocks on the Friday before Black Monday, well, guess what? You would have been up for the year. In other words, the worst day of the year and you, worst day maybe of our lifetime. And a year later, you made money. In other words, even when you make a brilliant sell call like that, it doesn't mean the fun is over forever. After the crash of 87, it paid to get right back in. The other money managers who nailed the crash and then stayed negative, they eventually faded into obscurity because being an Armageddonist it's a bad strategy. So here's the bottom line. I need you to take a moment to think before you decide to blow out everything because you feel it's going lower. Because unless you're nimble enough to get right back in at lower levels, it's probably a mistake to sell everything. And you might not be able to get back in except for higher than expected prices. Let's go to Matthew in Missouri. Matthew. Hey, Dr. Kramer. Matthew here from Kansas City, a big Midwest. Booyah, Ski Daddy from the Show Me State. Ah, go Andy Reid, Ski Daddy. What's up? It's on an inconvenient time for me. However, yesterday I reviewed your show from Wednesday last week, 27th. Uh, Also caught up on yesterday's show about Vicks, which you actually predicted the the market sell-off today. Right. One day, kudos on that. Uh, but back to Wednesday, you mentioned to you do your homework by damaged stocks, not damaged companies. Obviously, best practice. My question is, assuming you've done that homework on your bullpen stocks. Right. You've got a diversified portfolio, willingness to take profits when applicable, and also play the long game on, on selling stocks. My question right. is, what amount of cash and or a percentage of cash in your total portfolio would you retain for cost averaging uh, if, in fact, you believe that, you know, the homework on the stock and the company was solid? Uh, was damaged due to speculation, tweeting, you know, hyper interest trading, uh, whatever it might well, be. Well, hey, you and just declared that's exactly what I want. I want some cash. I mean, we, we raised about $350,000 for my Chapel Trust. We've been sending out negative bull after negative bull after negative bullion, except for a couple of core stocks we're trying to uh, circle the market uh, wagons around. And I think that once again, this is going to be very right. And I'm glad you called attention to it. And I hope other club members realize that too. Steve in California. Steve. Jimmy. Hey. Whoa, what's up? It's a little early, but happy Hanukkah. Oh, same. Thank you. So um, I wanted to
1: ask you, you know, if we're going to be in a stock, and unless it's got a big dividend, if it doesn't beat the averages, you might as well be in an index fund. About three months ago, waste management went from 121 down to 113. I bought it then. The market's since gone to all-time highs. Waste management has been going sideways and down. Should I be in an index fund or should I stay in waste
3: management? No, no, no. Look, remember, I like side-by-side. I like index funds and individual stocks. Uh, I think it's important. I think waste management has been going down because people feel like, well, wait a second, the Chinese aren't going to buy our waste. Well, they haven't been buying for some time. It's a construction play, not a, a, a a recycling play. I think you buy some here and buy some lower. Jim Fish, total confidence, buy it, not sell it. Tape is ugly. I get it. But panicking, not a strategy. And I don't want you to head for the exit. You might not be able to get back in at good prices. It's entirely possible that this turmoil will pass, and we'll see more gains ahead eventually. Much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive with Salesforce's co-CEO. What's the company's earnings signaling for the rest of the cloud cohort? And why is the stock down? Then after today's drop, looking for companies that could be worth considering during this market's cooling off period? I'm buying one that's up more than 100%. Coupa Software. See if you can deliver. And how is global uncertainty impacting a company like PPG? I'm talking with the CEO. So stay with Kramer.
2: Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk
1: on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. You understand what I do on the show? Do you know my role here? It's to translate you to them.
3: You know that, right? Wait, you can get Google. There's a Google Kramer translator. Okay.
1: It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need.
0: Is there anything you can't do?
1: Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS nope but our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything
0: at least that's good the ups store be unstoppable most locations are independently owned product services pricing and hours of operation may vary see center for details come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time support for this program is provided by chevron methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe Their 2028 Upstream Methane Intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane.
3: A couple weeks ago, we went out to San Francisco for Salesforce.com's annual Dreamforce conference. And the cloud kingpin told us a great story. That's one reason the stock has been such a terrific performer. But then tonight, Salesforce reported a generally strong quarter with one piece of hair on it. A company earned 75 cents a share and also only looking for 67. Sales came in higher than expected. Gross margins much better than anticipated. Billings excellent. However... Management's revenue forecast for next year came in a bit light. Same with the earnings, a bit something I warn you could happen. And that was enough to send the stock down in after hours. As I predicted, I think it's a classic under promise over deliver from a company with a phenomenal track record. Give them some benefit of the doubt. Given, though, how much the stock had run into the quarter, people wanted perfection. The thing is, while it wasn't perfect, it was pretty close, and the long-term forecast is amazingly strong. Don't take it from me. Let's dig deeper with Keith Block, the co-CEO of Salesforce.com, to get a better read on the quarter. Mr. Block, welcome back to Mad Money.
1: Hey, Jim, it's great to be here with you.
3: All right. So, Keith, we've got this usual uh, dichotomy. At first, it was a complete blowout quarter. I mean, much, much better than expected. Seventy five versus sixty six cents. So why don't you give us some of the components of where you really hit it home, which are the verticals? And also, since we're out there last week, how much are the new things like uh, the voice Einstein that we thought that was so exciting?
1: Well, Jim, it was a terrific quarter. You know, we have four and a half billion dollars in revenue at 34 percent growth. We've guided to 17 billion for this year, which is Absolutely amazing, and at Dreamforce, and you know you were there, so it was a super exciting time. we said that we would double the company again in the next four years to over thirty four billion so uh, it 's certainly an exciting time with what 's going on, and a lot of this is really being powered by digital transformation, and we see digital transformation all over the world, in every segment, in every industry, in every geography. And just to give you an example of this, I had a great conversation with the CEO of one of the largest industrial manufacturers in the world just last week before Thanksgiving. And we were talking about how organizations have grown up traditionally over time. And you think about kind of an inside-out product inside to an uh, out-market mentality, and it creates organizational silos, data silos, technology silos, cultural silos, business model silos. And in our conversation, we were talking about the power of digital transformation and what does that really mean because it's all about the customer now. And so we want to be able to take these customers that we're advising and talk to them about turning this from an outside-in view, customer first, all the way back from the experience to the supply chain. And that is the importance of digital transformation. Now. And the digital transformation... Yeah, go but ahead, Jim. I,
3: I did want to know who is transforming in a large way. And the reason I say that is because the last few times Mark has been on in the conference call, he said, Jim, and the biggest transformers are, and then he gives us these gigantic eight, nine figure wins, but I never get to ask you about it. Where are some people who are realizing eight, nine figure deals who need this transformation?
1: Well, there's a lot of transformation going on in the world. And again, this digital transformation is really based on three legs. The first one is technology. And that is lift and shift in its infrastructure. And how do you take advantage of that technology? The second is really about cultural change and organizational change. What are the workforce implications? How do you skill the workforce? And the third is the business model change. What are you actually going to do to take something and turn that model from customer experience all the way back to that supply chain? And it's very, very important. And, you know, when you think about these great wins that we've had in the quarter, and there are so many great wins, you think about companies or organizations Like the Veterans Administration, this is one that is near and dear to my heart. So this is an organization that is now one of our top customers, and we're helping them fulfill their mission, which is very important, taking care of these veterans who have served us, and now this is an opportunity to serve them. So that's another exciting opportunity that we've taken advantage of.
3: I want to be a little too granular here. Maybe you could argue, but people were saying that for next quarter, you're really guiding, you had been guiding at 62, and now you're guiding down to 54, 55. Now, this is the kind of nonsense I have seen with Salesforce so many times right before a gigantic breakout. So I need to know, was there any delta actuality in this quarter that made it so that you guided down the next quarter from what you were supposed to?
1: Now, Jim, as you know, we've got a very strong track record. We're the fastest growing enterprise software company at our size and scale. You know, we're doubling the company in the next four years. We've guided to 17 billion. So there's a lot of great opportunity. Digital transformation is everywhere. And that's why companies are coming to us as their trusted advisor. And it's very exciting time to be in the market. Well,
3: it's good. And I know you got that long term view. But I asked very specifically about this next quarter, which is what's sending the stock down from being 164 down to 159. I do not want to misread our viewers. If that's because I myself, Jim Cramer, have drunk the Kool-Aid of Salesforce and only care about the next five years, then I suck. And I don't. So I want to know if there's anything going on here that I should know.
1: Now, Jim, look, we've had a, we had a great quarter. We have a lot of success. Our business looks strong in the fourth quarter. It looks good for next year. Uh, and we're in a great position to advise these customers. And that's what we see every day.
3: Okay, so you buy Tableau. I read this uh, this, uh, article which said these guys have become the ultimate roll-up. They buy Mulesoft, They buy uh, ET. They they buy. Now they're buying this uh, Tableau. They just keep buying and buying because they don't have any natural source of growth. And all they try to do is raise price. Now, this is the new knock on Salesforce. I did not see any of that at Dreamforce, but I'm giving you the new knock.
1: Well, let me tell you about our innovation and some of the things that we're very, very excited about that happened at Dreamforce. So, look, we've been talking about the customer 360 and the importance of providing that 360, that single source of truth, which has been the holy grail in our entire industry. We've been talking about this for 30-plus years, and now Salesforce is in a position to do this. Nobody else in the industry can do this. Only Salesforce is able to do that. That's why companies are coming back. Uh, to Salesforce. They want want our advice. They want us to play that role of trusted advisors to CEOs and senior executives. We had another great piece of innovation was Einstein Voice. And imagine having a personal relationship, a voice-based relationship with Einstein to talk about your sales experiences Mm -hmm. or your services experience or your marketing experience. So there's a lot of innovation going on, whether it's organic or whether it's inorganic with things like Tableau and MuleSoft. And look, MuleSoft has been an incredibly successful acquisition. And we've seen great success. It has resonated resonated with our customers. It's a huge part of our digital transformation, and the way that we've made that run and uh, be so successful is exactly what we're going to do with Tableau. And at the end of the day, all this innovation, the ideas come from our customers. So there's plenty of innovation going on. Our customers are happy. The ecosystem is happy. Our partners are doing incredibly well. And we are serving the market and our customers with this digital transformation.
3: Okay, last question. You did put out some report about how uh, holiday season's going. It seems pretty gigantic on, on- online.
1: Well, it's been a big week at Cyber Week. We had over 32 million uh, orders that were processed on our platform. That's up 29% year That's over huge. year. Again, another great example of customers coming to us at Salesforce right. for their digital uh, transformation and being that trusted advisor. It's a great example of what's going on and the innovation that we're providing in the market.
3: All right. Thank you so much to Keith Block, co-CEO of Salesforce, with a blowout quarter. Let's see what happens with the guidance. Bit Money's money back after the break. Okay. Whenever the market gets hammered like this, you're going to get buying opportunities. Some of them are a lot more obvious than others. Take Coupa Software, C-O-U-P. That's the cloud-based software company that helps businesses identify cost savings in procurement and spending. I know it sounds boring, but listen to me. They call themselves the Salesforce.com of expense management and they are. Now, Cooper reported a fantastic quarter last time, but because the cloud stocks were out of favor right now, they initially sold. It was down 5%. That was crazy. It was stupid. Uh and because the company had delivered a massive 14 cent earnings beat off of a six cent basis, higher than expected sales, free cash flow good, and management raised their full year forecast dramatically. The market didn't initially care. Eventually, the stock, let's uh, say the market came to a census, uh, stock closed up 0.7%. But the other day, I think it would have been up 10. Don't take it from me, though. Let's check in with Rob Bernstein. He's the chairman and CEO of Kupa Software. Learn more about the quarter and his company's prospects. Mr. Bernstein, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you, Rob. Let's be with you, John. Okay, first, there's a lot of uh, difficulty and a lot of people understanding whether stocks are guiding up or how well they did. Yours was the most massive beat that I've seen, uh, and in t- particular I'm going to mention one number: better than expected, 22 million dollars versus a two million. <laughs> Consensus, 50, you're about more than 50%. How are you capable of doing that with something that I have to tell you is as prosaic and boring as procurement?
2: <laughs> well, Jim, look, whether economic times are good or bad, there's one thing you could definitively control, and that's your spend. Right. And our customers are doing that to the tune of over $1.5 trillion globally and growing very, very rapidly. And we're growing through their customer advocacy. We're growing through their referenceability. We're taking it one customer at a time. And these customers are letting others in their industry and others in their function know about the value we're delivering for them. Through this growth, we've been able to sustain you know, over 10 years of rapid growth, but also thoughtful expenditures on sales and marketing and great cash flow right. situation and as well. Right? This
3: is not one of those overnight successes. You've worked very hard. Last time we talked about how much money P&G has saved. They actually referenced in the call that they've been saving money in procurement. I know you spend a lot of time with BMW, a gigantic automobile company that must spend and spend. What are you capable of doing for them?
2: We're really proud to have earned uh, the business of BMW. We have other automotive uh, companies as well, divisions of Toyota, Audi, Rolls-Royce, and others. But BMW is a recent customer, recent member of our Coupa community, and we're going to help them manage all of their source-to-contract capabilities. We're going to apply information to ta- technology to their procure-to-pay processes. We're going to help them get their arms around all their categories of spend, delight their end users, help them prioritize where to save, and hopefully over time help them save not only tens of uh, millions of euros, but perhaps hundreds of millions of euros as we manage our relationship with them over the coming years.
3: And yet there are other companies where it just seems like, I know in the conference call it's excellent, all congratulations by the analysts, that sometimes when people hire you, they save a million dollars instantly. How's that possible?
2: Well, first of all, we've aggregated buy-side demand from our customer community. We've negotiated with dozens of suppliers across a whole host of commodities. So the minute they become a member of the Coupa community, they have access to preferential pricing with a whole host of these suppliers. And these are best-in-class preferred suppliers. Now, they could take advantage of them. They could choose to use their own contracts to do what they like. But many choose to take advantage of that and get value on day one. So, people
3: tell me, okay, Jim, what is this Coupa Cabana? What is this Coupa? What is it? Copa? It actually stands for something. Run it down.
2: It does stand for something. These are our vision areas. The C stands for comprehensive. That means every area of business spending, everything for procurement, invoicing, expensing, payments, sourcing, supply risk management. We help companies get their arms around all of it. The O stands for open, a very different spirit of interaction. You know our industry, I've been in it for 26 years now, it's not really known for having an open spirit with customers. A lot of demos and a lot of customers often get technology that doesn't really work for them. We make sure that every one of our customers gets measurable value in working with us and that means an open spirit of exchange with them from day one. The U stands for user centricity. The only way that you can get spend under management is if your end users all over the world From high-tech companies like Snap to to Spotify to financial services companies, Blackstone to BlackRock, um, you know, uh, ground crew at United or American Airlines, they have to engage with the solution. So we're helping to get massive spend and management through this focus on simplicity and user-centricity. The P stands for prescriptive. This is where we leverage the insights of our entire community of customers, for the benefit of each individual customer. We can let them know these are suppliers you should stay away from. They're not delivering well for our mm. community. They're not trustworthy. They're not shipping on time. They're over-invoicing. Wow. Okay. And the A stands for accelerated. That means time to value. Mid-market customers going live three to four months. Big enterprise global deployments going live in eight months. And with every one of these, we learn and get better and better and better.
3: All right, so let me present, because um, it is hard to rebut the presumption of wanting to hire you. I'm SAP. Uh, Bill McDermott now moving, but I'm Bill McDermott watching. I- I- I'm Oracle. And I'm saying, okay, let's see, C stands for O So stands- i I'm just going to do the same thing. Why can't uh, Oracle, um, it's, uh, SAP, mimic you?
2: Well, the first thing I'd say, this is a huge total addressable market, over 50 okay. billion bar calculations, and we're very early into penetrating this market. We have a lot of marquee customers all over the world, hundreds and hundreds, but we're still very early. But we're not a products company, Jerry. No. First of all, we're obviously a cloud company, you understand that, right. but we're really a value-as-a-service company. So we're delivering measurable, quantifiable value through the use of our best practices and our technology. And if those companies can overcome the classic innovator's dilemma and enter a true cloud value-as-a-service approach that we're taking, well, perhaps we'll see them in the in the market.
3: Well, it's clearly working. The acceleration is just beautiful. I want to congratulate you. And just so people know, I mean, I talk about a lot of companies like ServiceNow up 49%. Salesforce up 18 Adobe up 20% for one year. Coupa up 131%. Rob Ferguson, CEO of the Software. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. It is time It's time with the light round. And then the light over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy, time to the light round. I'm going to start with Tim in Alabama. Tim. Yes, sir. Thank you for taking my call. Absolutely. You know, my question is about Novo Cure Limited, symbol NVCR.
4: I've owned the stock for about four years, and it's uh, increased nicely. But my question is, with the company's success and strategy with Optune and uh, I would say its pipeline of other innovative cancer treatments, do you see it as a buy? Yes, still
3: I think it's a buy, and I've been liking it since about $17 level, since we had the chairman on repeatedly, and I've seen the product in action, and I do not want to sell it. Jack in New Jersey, Jack. Hey, Jim, what's doing, buddy? How much have you? Hey,
4: Jim, Jim. I'm in the uh, telecom industry, right? And okay. I'm constantly sending out new contracts to my clients for different vendors, and I cannot believe how many will complain if the vendor paperwork is not docusigned. So I buy some of the stock a while back, so I think it's like a new green theme economy type right. of play because they're uh, cutting waste and... But the main reason why I bought DocuSign, right, and it hasn't happened yet, is that some cloud provider like Salesforce, AWS, or Microsoft would buy the app.
3: Well, I don't think it's going to happen. We don't buy stocks for uh, takeovers, remember. But I do agree with you entirely and like the product very much. I've been recommending the stock to DocuSign. Ah! Let's go to Tom in Texas. Tom.
4: Hey, Jim. How are you? Uh, uh, this is Tom. And uh, I went through a divorce about a year ago. It left me a little financially strapped. Okay. Uh, but I am coming into some uh, inheritance. So I basically have a twofold question. Uh, one is I want to put a portion into
3: an index fund. So what is a good index fund? Okay. And currently I have a large um, stake in Altria, symbol MO. Okay, um, okay the first uh, S&P, I, I like the Vanguard. That's the one I'm in, so I've mentioned that one. It's not necessarily endorsement That but that is the one I'm in. Uh, in the street, I would say that. And then uh, Mo, no, we're not going to recommend any tobacco stocks. It, it, it's just too heinous. Uh, I went with that for a while. I tried. No, uh, anything, Jim. You know, please, don't don't buy their stocks. Okay, they don't deserve your money. How about Lucas in Minnesota? Lucas, a snowy and bearish booyah to you, Jim. I'm uh, calling because due to the boomers selling and the millennials buying. I'm wondering what your thoughts might be on Zillow for the I Roaring 2020. I like the last Twitter the house flipping business I was very suspicious of, but it does seem to be working for them. At the same time, if you really like housing, I think you ought to go buy the stock of Lennar which is a better and purer play. Um, sorry about the Vikings uh, last night. Uh, I hope Dalvin Cook gets better soon and not just because he's on my fantasy. Actually, no, because he's on my fantasy. Let's go to Benjamin in New Hampshire. Benjamin. Hey, Kramer. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. What's up? Looking to see what your thoughts are on Square, especially with Jack Dorsey heading to Africa for six months. I thought that was novel and unusual, Uh, and I'm still trying to get my arms around it. Fortunately, we did have their terrific, terrific CFO. I'm reading on when we were in San Francisco. I feel quite good about uh, the company's in good hands. I do think its stock is very undervalued. Uh, Jack wants to live in Africa for a while. Uh, God love him. When I saw him, he was uh, walking around in sandals. It was like a cold day. Who am I to judge? The stock then went up 30 points. So I decided, anybody seeing sandals, man, I should recommend the stock. Gary in South Carolina. Gary.
2: Hey, Kramer, how's it going? This is Gary out of Columbia, South Carolina. I just wanted to know what's the wisdom on enter, uh, at innovative industrial properties,
3: IITR. Cannabis, cannabis, cannabis. I'm tired of cannabis. They could can burn all the cannabis in that warehouse and many others. And all we do is make people high for a couple of days. And that Ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the lightning round.
2: The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
3: How worried should we be about these cyclical stocks? Those are the economically sensitive ones. Now that a trade deal with China is looking a lot less likely. This group experienced some amazing moves during the third quarter thanks to some assistance from the Fed and a better-than-fear to come. But can they keep climbing? Consider the case of PPG Industries, the specialty chemical company that makes all sorts of coatings and paints. For years, this stock was kind of tra- trapped in a tra- tra- trading range, bouncing between the mid-90s and 120 But a couple of months ago, PPG stock finally broke out of that range, climbing to fresh all-time highs. Even with the market getting hammered, it's only down about 3 bucks from these levels. So, is this stock merely paused for the moment, or is it time to ring the register? Let's dig in deeper with Michael McGarry, the chairman and CEO of PPG Industries, to get a better sense of how this company's doing. Where it's headed, Mr. McGarry.
4: Welcome back to May Hey, Jim, it's great to be back. Thanks for the invite.
3: Okay, so Michael, uh, contrary to most of the companies I deal with, you see green shoots in places they haven't been seen, and in particular, you saw some amazing growth in China and autos. I'd love to hear something positive. Everyone's so gloomy. You told it to us straight on the conference call. Give us the latest.
4: So, Jim, we're seeing a little bit of green shoots out there. Uh, You know, they. Local Chinese companies were struggling a bit as they made the emission changes on the engines. Now they've got their engine uh, problems behind them, so they're starting to uh, up their production rates, and we're starting to see that. And uh, we're also starting to see, I would say, firming of the bottom in China right now.
3: And that is uh, whether we have trade talks, no trade talks, 2020 deal, no deal. That's just innate business that you have.
4: Well, I think we've done a lot of, the team there has done a lot of good jobs of taking costs out. Uh, they've been able to grow in this difficult time. And at the same time, we've been able to raise prices. So, you know, if we got a trade deal, it would certainly be a, uh, a nice kick to what we're doing in China.
3: Now, I think that what is most significant is that you maintain the optionality to be able to do M&A. I also uh, found that this was the second quarter in a row that you didn't buy stock first time in seven years. To me, that implies you really are on the hunt for something. And every time you've done a deal, it's been very additive.
4: Well, Jim, as you know, we've been a very uh, acquisitive company. Uh, We've even done five deals in the last 12 months. Uh, So we like doing deals. It's uh, better for our shareholders than buying back stock. But we're not going to let cash sit on the balance sheet. So if we don't see something, we'll be out there buying back stock. But right now, our our pipeline is pretty active. But
3: I do want to make it clear to our viewers who love dividends that you have always paid a great (laughs) dividend. And that doesn't change whether you're buying back stock or not.
4: No, I think uh, we're on year 47 in a row of raising our dividends. We've been paying dividends since 1899, so uh, we're definitely a dividend aristocrat.
3: Now, there are a couple things that I really like that people say, well, Jim, it's cyclical, cyclical. I see some longer-term trends that, to me, do not seem cyclical at all. I mean, for instance, the move out of plastic to can is real. People want to find something to be able to make it so that they say, you know what, I want to go green. I want a stock that goes green. This shift is very real for you guys, right?
4: Oh, Absolutely. As you know, we're uh, big in the packaging space, the second largest uh, producer of canned coatings. All our uh, can coatings customers are very bullish about the shift out of plastic into aluminum. I mean, I think the stat is around 75% of all aluminum ever been produced has been recycled. And so this is a a very sustainable solution, and we're going to coat all those uh, cans.
3: Uh, Aerospace remains a winner. Despite what we hear about Boeing, there's still tremendous demand for coatings.
4: Well, our aerospace business is winning in every sector, whether it's paint, whether it's uh, canopies, uh, transparencies for planes, whether it's uh, sealants and adhesives, you know, that business is firing in all cylinders. We're growing twice the rate of the market, mostly through new technology, and that uh, will continue.
3: Okay, now, uh, away from China, you do say, look, auto's a little bit weaker, uh, maybe say, seeing some bottom, bottom the United States. But one of the things I find the most exciting, I've gotten— quite uh, acquired with this, uh, really, story about Tesla, and uh, the EV, the electronic va- uh, volt battery. It seems like to me that because of the, let's just say the slush in New York City today, this is not California. You need to coat those batteries and coat those batteries so the salt doesn't erode them. Isn't that a natural place for PPG?
4: Well, Jim, what we say is electric vehicles take two to four times as much paint as a traditional vehicle. So you start with the pretreatment of the box, then you electric coat it, and then you have to have a sealant adhesive close that enclosure. And then on the inside, you need protective coating so that you can uh, keep from having what we call a thermal event, which some people call a fire. And then we're working on binder technology as well as gap fillers in the battery as well. So whenever electric vehicle comes, we're going to have new technology, and we're going to have a lot of new winds in that space. So we're pretty excited about uh, electric vehicles. Do you think that that is uh, something that's going to happen
3: within the next five years, or am I dreaming that it's going to be shorter than that?
4: Well, I think it's going to be a slow ramp because one of the things they have to do is solve the cost problems, and that's why we're so excited about our play in the binder technology and the anode and cathode is because we can help our customers get their costs down. And so we're working. We have trials going on in China, trials going on in the U.S., and trials going on in in Europe as well on uh, new battery formulations that will help them out. All of it focused on getting productivity up and costs down. Now, I spent a lot of time in Mexico,
3: probably visited there six times in the last six <laughs> months. You guys have a huge business in Mexico, and Mexico seems booming to me. That was a great acquisition. How's that doing for you?
4: It's, it's been unbelievable, Jim. Uh, it's been growing every year. We're going to have another record year this year. When we bought the business, we had uh, about 3,800 stores. Now we have 4,800 We've added 90 stores already this year. We're going to add another 90 stores in the fourth quarter alone. As you know from your home down there, Christmas is a big time for Mexico, and we're really excited about our Mexican business. It's hard to imagine, but every year it keeps getting better and better due to great leadership down there and great technology.
3: Well, Michael, congratulations on being one of the strongest cyclicals I've because you're not really a cyclical. You have all secular growth that I can see. Thank you so much for coming back to Mad Money.
4: Uh, Thank you very much, Jim.
3: All right, guys, if you're looking for a company that has great growth in a time when you're not supposed to expect it, it's PPG. Stick with Kramer. As I predicted, cloud stocks under pressure, Workday reports good quarter stock goes down, Salesforce bouncing all over the place. Let's see, wait a couple of days. J&J at the close says once again, there was no asbestos in its talc. Stock is going up. Remember, the plaintiff's bar will soon answer and tell you that there is asbestos in the talc because that's the way the business of the plaintiff's bar is. Remember, no sin, it's what they do for a living. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere and I promise I'll try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer And I will see you tomorrow. Take your business further
0: with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash Business Gold Card.